Okay, identifying microclimates. Okay, what is a microclimate? A microclimate, we kind of got a hint on the very first day, and that was USDA zones. Because the USDA hardiness map, when you look at a, on the about page, it says that there is a chance that there's a microclimate that's just too small for the map to pick up. Well, you can get those in your yard. And one of the things that I like to do, uh, you know, I keep everything on Excel spreadsheet. I don't trust my brain to keep all this information. There's no way I would trust it. <laughs> it all goes in Excel. And I like to keep the country of origin. So wherever that plant is from, uh, let's just say it's from Africa. I found out last year watermelons are indigenous to Africa. Now, Africa is a big place. So what part of Africa? Well, it was the dry, arid part of Africa, and they grow really, really well. And I also keep track of what did they use them for? Well, they used them for to feed livestock. They used them to carry water from one area to another, which I just think is so cool. It's like way back in the day when they had to get from point A to point B with very little water in between, they had a built-in canteen. I mean, I just think that is so cool. Another example would be something that comes from the Mediterranean. So when you look at something like lavender, I had the hardest time when I, I love lavender, but I had the hardest time growing lavender when I first started gardening because I lived in Northeast Texas where it's very, very humid. We have all the pine trees, we have the acidic soil, and I was planting the, the lavender in a place in my yard that just was not the same as the Mediterranean climate. So when I think of microclimates, now what I do is I say, okay, where did that plant come from? And if it is something like lavender or rosemary or something that I know comes from that area of the world, I try to give it that environment. So it's not just the climate. So let's just step back for a second and let's take a look at what is it like in the Mediterranean. Well, I already know it's a lot like the Southwest. You've got poor soils, you've got rocky soils, you've got a dry, arid climate. It's not like it's in the middle of the desert, right? So you kind of have to, you got to put all of the pieces to the puzzle together that you can. So go look it up on Wikipedia, go look it up on Google, call someone you know that's from there. You know, if you're talking about a place like Mexico, for instance, just like with Africa, is it in the interior part of Mexico or is it near the ocean? Is it near a, a breezy, saline, beachy area like a palm tree or is it in the interior part of Mexico where it's a jungle? So you need to know that part of it too. If you're looking at someplace like Europe, there's a big difference between say the south of France and the north of France. If you're looking at somewhere in Europe, you know, there's a big difference between England and the south of France. So you need to really kind of study, I mean, this is what I do. I look at where did that plant originate from? What's its motherland? Where's its mothership? What kind of soil does it like? What kind of, you know, in the case of the lavender, I just put a lot of rocks and sand into the bed and I kind of built it up a little bit. To this day, I don't really know what the difference is, what made all the difference in the world because 
when I first started trying to grow lavender, I couldn't grow it at all. Now when I grow lavender, I just give it a lot of rocks. Honestly, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody else knows, if it's because of the minerals that come from the rock dust. Is it because it's warm on a cool night? Is it because it's just not in a real heavy clay soil? I don't know. I just try to give it the climate that it comes from and all those conditions. I look at the crocus. The crocus flower grows the most expensive spice in the world, so far as I know. I haven't checked lately, but I believe saffron is still the most ex expensive spice in the world, and it just is the, the pistil or the stamen, the long skinny part that comes up that has pollen on it in the middle of this beautiful little purple flower. Well, in this case, I was looking specifically at the crocus sativus. What I have written down here is it comes from the Mediterranean. And then it went on to say that there's kind of a big fight about where it is, where it comes from, where it's the best. I always also look at what is the wives tale or what's the history, what's the lore behind it? Because that'll give you some idea too of maybe it has really um, settled into a place and it's done really, really well there for centuries and centuries, but it was also grown, say, in another location before that. So maybe the Egyptians brought it over from somewhere else. According to my research, the saffron flower can be found within the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt. There were antidotes by Homer of ancient Greece. Wow, I didn't remember that, but... Uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll hear about this flower or this lily or this piece of fruit. It was on the temples or they found it in the Pharaoh's tomb or whatever it is. That gives you some sort of indication of what that microclimate or what that climate is where that plant did really, really well. And then maybe it was carried over by the Romans into Europe. And then they found a place there where they planted it and planted it and planted it, kind of like I do in my yard. I just kind of spread it out all over the place. And this is what I have done with a lot of things. I'll spread it out all over the yard and I'll just see where it's happy. And it depends on how much something costs, how much I'll do that. I'll just spread it out all over and just see where it likes to grow. So <laughs> maybe they did that in Europe and they found out that it did really, really well in Spain. And there's a really big battle between, I know Spain is purported to have the best saffron in the world. But then again, Spain may have a lot of different climates within its region. I live in Texas. I know we have a lot of different climates. Just in the state of Texas, we have the ocean. We have mountains. We have the piney woods. We have the prairie lands. We have the desert. And so we have like five different micro, we have five different climates. I wouldn't even call them microclimates. We have five different climates just within the state of Texas. And I know it can be that way just on my property, just in your yard. You may have two or three different climates. You can create another one or two or three, depending on where you live. Okay, it says here, that evidently the value source, if it comes from the La Mancha region of Spain, well, everybody knows where La Mancha is, right? That La Man, the man of La Mancha. <laughs> um, but yet Iran exports 90% of the saffron that's harvested from the crocus flower. 
I would see what are the differences or what are the similarities between the part of Iran that it comes from and the La Mancha region of Spain. But that's just me. So that's how I kind of geek out on microclimates. I love to look at the country of origin and not just the country of origin, but what is the lore behind that plant? Again, I keep everything on spreadsheet. And this is why I don't put it up in my brain because I just have so much information that I'm collecting on it. And I want to know. And, you know, one of the reasons that I look at the lore and the history of it is they'll say in some um, some of my research that I've done that, you know, sage is, you know, was carried by this, the Roman soldiers because it was said to have given them bravery or power or wisdom or whatever it is about that plant. Like, I know that I found that in the Bible, it talks about coriander, which is the same thing as cilantro. And it's said to be so nutritious. I mean, when you look at the, the current scientific data about cilantro, it's said to be so high in nutrients. But it in the Bible, it's compared to, it says it was like coriander. And they were talking about manna, that the manna was like coriander. And I'm thinking, wow, you know. If they lived off of it for 40 years, wandering around in the desert, that must be some pretty good stuff. Where there's smoke, there's fire, right? So I like to look at all of the details that I can about a plant. And I don't have as many plants as I want, but that's because my brain can't keep up with how much information I want to know about each and every plant. And that includes the ones that I had already growing on the property that we have right now. There was so much data to collect about all the stuff that's already here, and now I'm introducing new stuff. A little bit at a time. I mean, a little bit every year, I'm introducing new species and trying to find out as much as I can, but this is one of the reasons because I wanna know what kind of microclimate I'm going to put it in. So what I do is I walk around my yard, my we actually have some acreage here and I look for these microclimates when it's an extreme weather event. So if it's a freeze, I walk around and I look and I see where is there no ice. For instance, I know I did that last year. We had a hard freeze. We actually had some snow on the ground, I believe. In the front of the greenhouse, which is the northern part of the yard, it was all frozen. In the south end, it was all thawed out. There was no snow. There was snow on the ground everywhere except for this one spot. It was just like someone came along with a blow dryer and blew it all dry. <laughs> there's some parts where there's no freeze, but yet I walk around my property and I see there is frost just in this one little spot. If it's a really heavy rain, I walk around and I see where's the water pooling and I know where it is because I can see even when the water's all gone I can see a difference in the color of the grass I can see I can see what it is so when you're doing your observing you know I told you back in the beginning of the podcast that one of the key, key components and one of the most valuable things that I got out of taking the permaculture design course is observation it's the ability to observe the patterns. You know, I always kind of feel like that crazy lady. Well, they thought she was crazy. I didn't think she was crazy. 
on that movie Contact. Did you ever see that movie Contact from years ago with Jodie Foster? Where they pull her grant, she loses her research facility because people found out that she had been listening to um, static on the TV and the cycles of a dryer or washing machine or something. And they were saying, are you crazy? Did you really think that this wouldn't get out? And she said, well, I was looking for the patterns in the chaos. <laughs> and that's what it seems like sometimes. It just all seems like it's chaos and that it's all an accident. But really and truly, there are patterns and we can call them microclimates within our own yard. But I'm just going to break it down. Okay, I'm going to stop geeking out so much. I'm going to stop being the crazy um, pattern lady from Contact, Jodie Foster. I think that's a good company. I, I love that show. <laughs> but, okay, let's just take it to the basic level. So if you have an area that's all sun and you have an area that's all shade, those are two different microclimates. You can go around, and I have one of those little thermometers that go that are in the kitchen that you can pull the trigger and it's digital. And I'll actually take a reading on the ground. Like I said, I like to do it when it's extreme weather, either extreme heat or extreme cold or right after a rain, something like that. But I'll go around and I'll actually take readings of the temperature on the ground with this little digital thermometer and it'll tell me it's 10 degrees cooler in the shade than it is in the sun or it's 10 degrees cooler on the ceiling than it is on the floor of the greenhouse maybe you don't want to take it to this level but okay so Sepp Holzer grew citrus this is what I hear I wasn't there I never talked to the man but this is what has been <clears throat> touted in the permaculture world is that he was growing citrus in Austria. Not Australia, Austria. And he did it by creating a microclimate. He built walls out of stone and then he put his citrus up next to that stone wall. That stone collects heat over the entire day in the way of solar energy and then it it stays warm enough at night to release that heat, kind of like a water bottle, to release that heat for those citrus trees to get it through the, the cool part of the evening. Now, how cool is that? <laughs> and I haven't built any brick walls or any stone walls or anything, but I could tell you that I know that it's much warmer downtown because of all the concrete, all the buildings, all the streets, all the bridges. All of that concrete makes it so much warmer. I, I don't know how much warmer it is because I didn't actually go around with my little thermometer. I'm not that crazy. But I can tell you it's a lot warmer just anywhere near downtown than it is once you get away from all that concrete. Out here where I live, it's always, always cooler than it is when you get into town. Finding these little microclimates in your yard, a lot of it has to do with finding the sun finding the shade, and finding the edge between the two. Another big saying in permaculture is that life loves edges. Well, there's a good reason for that. You think about, okay, the edge is going to be the drip line of a tree. That's where a lot of condensation is going to happen. The edge is the drip line from a house. 
That's where you're going to have a lot of runoff, a lot of water that's dripping down from the roof. It's going to be moisture there. And when there's more moisture, there's more acidity. It may just be a little bit. Um, where there's more moisture, there's going to be a, more of a cooling effect. And this is something that I had a really interesting conversation with my uncle who worked law enforcement in a forest. So he was law enforcement for a state park. And he was talking about the evaporative cooling effect. And I'm just definitely want to get him on the show about this. And, you know, it was such an eye opener for me because when I was a little girl and I went and stayed with, this was with my great grandma and grandpa, they had an evaporative cooler. They didn't have an air conditioner, but we always slept right in front of that. And it felt so good. And all it was, was air blowing over moisture. So if you have a tree line and those trees perspire, um, there's a more technical word for it. You've got transpiration. It, you got pers it, you could call it perspiration. You could call it respiration. You could call it a lot of different things, but basically they're perspiring. They're sweating. And they have a little bit of moisture just all over them. You know, just a little, little bit here and there. But then whenever that breeze blows over it, it's like an evaporating cooling effect. And I just think that's so cool. So if you have that in a place that's in it one part of the day, it just feels humid all up in there. If it's the, the part of the day that's the heat of the, the day, like I would say four to five o'clock is the hottest part of the day. It's not noon. It's just still warming up. But when you look at the temperature throughout the day, it's around four to five o'clock, depending on where you live. But then at about six o'clock where the sun is coming in from the west and it's shining on some plants, but yet the temperature, the breeze is starting to blow because it does a little bit more. Um, but the, the, when the breeze comes and passes over those little teeny tiny droplets you really can't even see, it's a cooling effect. And so one part of the day, it may just be hot and humid and you can't hardly stand it. It feels like you're in a sauna. But another part of the day, in that same place, it's got a real cooling effect. Well, those are microclimates. Now, I'm going to take it down, back down. I kind of went back up into the geek level. But I'm going to take it back down to the basic level. If you've got an area that is nothing is impeding the sunlight and it's on the south side, then you've got, now you've got a little sun trap. And you have a tree that's kind of right on the edge between sun and shade. You have a little bit of a dappled shade. That's another microclimate. If you have just full sun and the you have deciduous trees and all those trees have lost their leaves and it's winter time. So when you have deciduous trees, all the leaves are on in the summertime and they're all off in the wintertime. So whatever's under that tree in the summertime, is going to be 10 degrees uh, cooler in that shade. And in the wintertime, it could be 10 degrees warmer in that same spot. So this is one of those things I can't really tell you how exactly to find exact what microclimate in your yard, there's no way that I could do that. Even if I came to your property 
even if I walked your property and looked in great detail, I wouldn't be there throughout all the seasons. I wouldn't be there through a big event like a snowstorm or the heat of the summer or a big rain or, I don't know, morning to afternoon, afternoon to evening or dawn to dusk to in the evening time. You know, at nighttime, a lot of things happen. If you can't tell, this is one of those times where I really geek out, but just take notice of go walk around your property, see, okay, this is in full sun all day, or this is in full sun just in the morning. It's in the shade in the afternoon. That's a great microclimate because a lot of things can take morning light, but they can't take the beat down of the afternoon um, summertime. Here where I live, that's a great little microclimate. They got sun pretty much all day, but they're not taking the brunt of the, the heat between four and five o'clock or five, you know, whatever the, the hottest part of the day is. Also, in the winter time, the sun path is different than it is in the summertime. If you live where I live, and I can't speak to where it is over the equator, I just really don't even know. My, you know, you need to ask somebody. If you live around the equator, somewhere at the North Pole or the South Pole, this is going to be different for you. But where I live, in the summertime, if you take your finger and go directly over your head from right to left, like elbow extended, arm straight, you go over your head from left to right or right to left, that is where the sun travels in the summertime, straight up in the sky. But in the wintertime, you take your finger and you go left to right, but now you've got it more at chest level. Maybe between chest level and, and uh, you know, do it at eye level. But you go like that, that's where it goes in the winter time. So the sun path is different between the winter and the summertime. So if you're looking to plant something right now, and this always happens, and this is the summer equinox or the solstice or whatever they call it, but these dates for me are December the 21st. That's the winter solstice. It goes around eye level from left to right, finger pointed, arm extended, left to right or right to left in front of your eyes. It goes lower on the horizon at December the 21st. In the middle of the summer, we're going to call it June the 21st because that's what it is, the summer equinox or summer solstice. And I'm going to use those terms intermittently. I don't know if that's right, but... It goes directly overhead. So if you're looking to plant something right now, it's March. So it's some kind of, somewhere kind of in between there. Not because the sun changes where it is in the sky or where it is in the universe. The earth is changing on its axis. So that's something that we learned in, you know, elementary school or middle school or whatever. But it's it's just a little bit off of its axis. But we don't need to know all that. We just need to know. If you plant something right now that's in full sun or in full shade, it may not be that way come summertime. And you wonder why, um, you know, this whole series about grow where you're planted, you might wonder why I know I planted that in the shade or I know I planted that in the sun or I know I planted it, you know, this or that. It's going to change between summer and winter. And this, you know, microclimates is a little bit advanced. It's not as basic as I sold it to be as part of this little mini series on growing where you're planted. But I just wanted to introduce you to the concept of microclimates 
there's no pressure here. Just go out and look at your yard and see, is there something really distinctly different about this area as opposed to that area? And I know some people really don't have much of a yard at all, but is it in the sun all day? Or is it in the sun just in the morning? Or is it in the shade in the morning and in the sun in the afternoon? That's probably what I should have led with. <laughs> in the front of your house, is your front of your house facing north, north or south? Is it facing east or west? You know, is your kitchen window that you look out of when you do the dishes, is it facing north, south, east or west? Is there a place that you want to plant something? Is, you know, just watch from, you know, set a timer on your watch or on your phone and go take a picture every hour or every 30 minutes just for one day and do that um, in the wintertime sometime. Do it again in the spring sometime. Do it again in the, uh, in the summer. Do it again in the fall. Just, you know, set it, uh, set it on your calendar and just do it every once in a while. But you know, whenever you look at where you're going to plant stuff, doing plant selection, this is a big deal. Just knowing if there's sun or shade. this It's a big deal to know that you're going to get a lot of water coming off the roof and it's going to end up right here. So is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? It depends. If you're planting lavender right at the edge of where the water runs off the roof, not such a good thing because Lavender does not like to have wet feet, and we're not going to really get into what the particular plants like or do not like right now, but this is one of those things that you just need to be aware of. I had lavender at the right on the front bed of my house, and they died, and I realized later, oh my gosh, you know, hand to the forehead moment, what the heck was I thinking, you know? I knew that. Yet I did it. I don't know why I did that, but I could have saved two lavender plants. I, I could have not committed lavender murder if I hadn't thought of that. And, you know, stuff like that's just going to happen. But again, I think that one of the best ways to determine what your microclimate is for a specific plant, buy a flat of strawberries, let's just say, and just plant them everywhere that you have bare soil, everywhere that you can and put them in the ground. And we're not talking containers, we're talking in the ground. If you have the luxury of having a lot of space to do that and just see where they're gonna be the happiest. Also, one more thing that you might wanna add, if you start doing a spreadsheet like I do, you might wanna add where in the ecological succession does that plant fall? Like strawberries or a woodland plant. So would you plant them out in the middle of, um, just out in the middle of the yard with no protection of trees, with no overstory layer? Well, you could, but it's probably going to struggle, especially if you live in Texas in the middle of July. It's going to struggle or it's going to die. Those things are best learned on your own. I can tell you that because I know that to be 1000% true for me, but if you live in East Texas, or Northeast Texas, or somewhere else that's like that, you have that kind of climate. I wouldn't even call it a microclimate. I would just say that's your climate for where you live. You have a lot of trees just everywhere. It may be the case where you can plant it out in the middle of your yard. I don't know. We are going to wrap it up here. That's as much as I want to say about microclimates right now. 
but I'm sure we're going to talk about microclimates a lot more. Uh, microclimates are just so fun and so crucial, and there's just such a great way to extend your growing season or squeeze in more stuff that you really didn't think that you could do to begin with. Anyway, all right, so that does it for microclimates. Y'all have a good week. Bye for now. Oh, 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 oh,